Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. In the commercial and industrial property markets, some asset classes will take years or decades to recover from the impact of COVID-19. That's according to the man who ran Oxford Properties for more than seven years. Today, Blake Hutchinson steps into the role of president and CEO of parent company Omers. I had a chance to speak to him and to Catherine Judge, an economist at CIBC Capital Markets. We began by discussing COVID-19 as a health crisis with economic implications, not an economic crisis in and to itself. Well, clearly in uh, 08, for example, it was a financial crisis. The financial institutions were being tested. They were in jeopardy. And it was really about keeping the fabric of the economic uh, community intact. And this one, as you know, started with a, a health issue and then it became effectively a government uh, lockdown, which led to the economic uh, super suspension that we've all endured. And so it clearly started as a health crisis and it wasn't as though the economy wasn't functioning well, unemployment was low, capital spend was up, opportunity set was, was terrific, multiples were expanding. So it made it difficult to make uh, outsized returns, but the economy was intact. And um, this showed up and we all know uh, why in 195 countries in the world, the reaction was let's save people and worry about the economy next time. And that's how it all started. It's led to obviously an economic uh, crisis of sorts, um, but watching the governments, watching the banks, central banks, around the world, some have done it better than others. They have been able to keep the fabric of the economic environment uh, intact during this time, uh, recognizing it's, it's started as a healthcare crisis, it's now, then it was moved to a government-induced economic crisis, and now it's a combination of both. But we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, which is positive. Right. So this recession is unique in the fact that we've seen a government mandated shutdown of activity. So this recession was not caused by weakness in demand or weakness in incomes. Um, it was a forced shutdown. So it is different in that respect. Um, but I think we will be dealing with a very prolonged recovery. Um, it's not looking like the shutdown um, occurred over a matter of months, but the recovery will certainly be a lot longer than that. Um, in our forecast, we don't see GDP returning to its pre-virus level until after 2021. So we're actually recovering into what we see as a recessionary period where, yes, the unemployment rate will be coming down in the next few months. Um, of course, as things open up, we'll see more hiring in retail, manufacturing, construction. Um, but until there is a vaccine, and that looks like it won't be until the end of 2021, we will have to have some uh, social distancing measures in place, um, which means lingering unemployment um, and we've also seen some secondary impacts in professional services that were not directly impacted by the shutdowns um, that are now laying people off, um, even in May. So um, that tells us that businesses are foreseeing this period of extended weak demand. 
Um, and that's a very worrisome picture and just that confirms the fact that it will be a very long recovery. Do you anticipate that we see light at the end of the tunnel sooner than we would the 2008 financial crisis because the underpinning of the economy pre-COVID-19 was in fact solid? You know, there's so many uh, views, whether it's a B, whether it's a W, whether it's a swoosh recovery. We've got today a $100 billion plus portfolio. We're 35% in Canada. We're 40% United States, we're 20% Europe, we're sort of five and change in, in Asia PAC, uh, a little bit in the rest of the world. And so our view is so far flung. We've got 30 infrastructure assets, we have 20 private equity companies, we have 450 real estate assets, we have $50 billion invested in equities and credits. So when I look around the world, there is no single answer to your question. Um, some Asset classes will recover sooner than later. Some are going to take years, years to recover, maybe decades. And there are clearly winners and losers um, that we cannot, um, we, you can't avoid it when something like this happens. And so certain areas are going to snap back and certain areas are going to be long dated, infinitely more so than 08. And you just have to, if, if the business plan is what am I great at? How do we get in the way of a trend given limited resources? We have to be very careful as we roll out our resources to try and align them with the winners and not the ones that are on the other side of that coin. I'd like to back up if you don't mind. You scared the ever living daylights out of me. Some asset classes will take years or decades to recover? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, let's take the hotel industry. It's going to be three to five years before you get back to the same occupancies and the same room rates. There's a good example. We've already seen some types of retail assets that will um, not make it. Such as? Well, you know, let's take Cirque du Soleil um, as an example. And we're not an investor and I'm not being critical and maybe someone can resuscitate it, but it it went from being a spectacular uh, entertainment venue to dissipating in a matter of days. Can it ever get back to where it was? Don't know. We are an investor in a cinema chain in Europe. We went from very decent revenue to zero overnight. Will it get back to the same place? Um, don't know. So those are those are a couple good examples. And you're, you're seeing lots of retailers uh, declare bankruptcy, probably never to never to come back into the into the game, at least as, as we know it today. So I would say more on the retail and the entertainment front as we change our habits, uh, you know, not just in this country, but globally. So what does that mean for Oxford Properties and ultimately Omers? Well, you just have to, first of all, we've got an outstanding uh, network of diversification um, by companies, by countries, by regions, by asset classes. And so you know, I'm very confident that, you know, we're looking long-term and we will be fine, better than fine. Uh, Omer's has averaged uh, 8% returns for five years and 10 years and beyond. And we think of a quarter, not as three months, but 25 years. Hmm. And so, you know, when we look at setting ourselves up for success, we're very liquid today. We'll weather the storm. 
it'll be a tough year for us. It'll be a tough year for everybody. Let's not kid ourselves. But we have um, lots of capital to go buy what we hope will be multi-generational platforms and other great investments in a market where, you know, there just is a much greater scarcity of capital than existed, you know, six months ago. So I like our odds and I, you know, totally convinced we've got a spectacular team to invest. And if you don't believe in tomorrow, you shouldn't be in business. And when you have the privilege of working with and for one of these pension plans, you can think long-term. So we will be fine and better than fine. What you really need to do though, when you look to the future is be very disciplined about who you think the winners and losers are uh, coming out of a cycle like this one and deploy heavily in the areas you feel there are greater opportunities and pivot from your earlier strategies if you think there are some places that um, just don't share the same um, opportunity set that you thought they shared six months ago. That's probably, you know, that's sort of probably the best explanation. So I think there could be some uh, change in these structural structural shifts that we were seeing um, before the recession. So we had the structural shift towards online shopping. Um, that certainly has been accelerated during this and it likely will um, retain some of that market share. And that's one um, reason why we could see more insolvencies of smaller retailers. Um, they had already been competing with online, which offers more options to consumers and more competitive pricing in many cases. Um, so that probably probably will stick around some of it. Um, now your point on uh, working from home and things like video conferencing, we have had those technologies um, for decades in some cases. And we know that um, only about 30% of Americans have work from home capabilities, but not that many were actually working at home prior to this. So it probably will become more acceptable, um, especially until there is a vaccine. Um, given these new social distancing rules that employers and offices will have to um, implement, it would make sense and it's reasonable to assume that some people will continue to work from home at least until there is a vaccine. Um, but certainly we've seen that business travel, for example, tends to move in lockstep with global trade volumes. So there is still an appetite for things like that once um, restrictions are loosened even more and there is more progress towards uh, treatment or vaccine. As far as winners and losers are concerned, are the suburbs the winner? Is the urban center the loser post-COVID-19? I think you'll get a lot of opinions. The, the short answer is I doubt it. I mean, urbanization is such a global trend. The young generation want to live and work in downtown centers. The entertainment is you know, a few blocks away, not, you know, getting in your car and going elsewhere. And so the, that trend will still, I think, be very much uh, around and real as we come through this period. I think when you look at infrastructure dollars and they are limited and they'll be even more limited, whether it's municipal or provincial or state or federal or national, wherever they come from, when you allocate infrastructure dollars, you have to choose 
the biggest employment zones and the biggest urban centers. So I do think that will, won't change. You'll still see way more public dollars get spent on our cities. And some of those will have to be making them safer, improving public transportation, the cleanliness thereof, et cetera. So no, we're still a firm believer in urbanization. Um, does it change some habits? I think it surely will in terms of giving people flexibility and choice in the workplace. And that would suit those who live um, you know, outside of the concentric circle that they've had to commute uh, to in, in urban centers for years. Um, so I think there'll be some lifestyle changes, but I still fundamentally believe that uh, our cities are growing and incrementally so, and they will be the place to invest. I wonder how much we could learn from Asia. I know you've spent a lot of time in that part of the world. It, it, if office space demand declines, but demand for space within those offices goes up, how do we apply that to Canada's office space world? Well, yeah, my my view, and and we're all studying this, and I think you can you can see um, lots of experts with their own views. My own view is that there is probably a twenty percent diminution in the next you know six months to two years in demand for office space as people learn to adapt and pivot, either because their businesses have shrunk a bit or they do have a better sort of um, more flexible workforce, many of whom can work at home. So that's a 20% diminution. I also think people want probably a 10% expansion in the space they're in. They need a little more elbow room. And so the net demand decrease might be 10% which is totally manageable as a big landlord or a big owner of office product because leases are five and 10 years. And so if you lose 2% a year of potential demand, that's very manageable in terms of valuation of assets. And if your assets are great, and I think in our case, that would be a good characterization, I think we'll be more competitive than most for not only keeping our tenants, but attracting others. So from an office perspective, we, we believe that our strategy for years, which is owning the greatest office buildings in the best cities in the world with the best fundamentals, we're going to be fine. And I think that there will be a little less demand for sure. So that'll impact some things. So, but I don't think it's going to change the dynamic for great, great real estate in city centers. Um, and we're seeing, you know, 90% of our rents are getting paid against our office portfolio. We have offices in you know, office buildings in London and Paris and Berlin and Australia and multiple cities in the United States and across this country. And so even in this most devastating period of time, we're faring pretty well. And so will the utilization of space be different? For sure. Will the hypersensitivity to cleaning and air quality and things be different? For sure. But office space is not going away and nor are great office buildings and running businesses that I have, you do need a certain amount of quality time in three dimensions to build the culture you want around great businesses. And so I think that's not lost on most big employers. Yeah. So with these new safety regulations, it is 
likely that we'll need more square footage per office worker, which of course makes it more expensive for the firm to bring all of the employees back, which is one reason why we think it will remain acceptable for more work from home going forward. Um, but then when you consider the fact that you will have business insolvencies, um, especially in a cyclical market like Calgary, that will leave um, some open capacity on the market that will have to be absorbed. Um, if we look at past recessions, rent office rents typically fall, um, supply rises. So that's something that we would probably see this time around as well. I wonder if there's a regional subset to this, though. You know, Calgary has the most exposure to the energy sector in North America, and oil prices went negative under COVID-19. What does this mean for that city's office market? So Calgary had already gone through an adjustment period during the oil price shock in 2014-2015 that had already left a lot of supply on the market. Um, I think this is just another hit. And if you look at the uh, prospects for oil production and the price of oil, um, a lot of the upwards momentum coming in oil prices lately has actually been from restraint on the supply side. We need to see a much more sustainable pickup in global demand for oil. Um, and of course, a large portion of that actually comes from air travel, um, which doesn't appear to be recovering anytime soon with these travel restrictions still in place. Um, so this is just another challenge added to the office market in Calgary, certainly. Nothing's changed in Calgary from COVID-19. Uh, the demand there against the supply has been, you know, really difficult for any owners in recent years. And so is it marginally worse now? I suppose it is. But there is a, you know, there's a massive amount. It's probably, you know, depending on your statistics, there's 10 to 20 years of office supply in that market today. And so with average absorption rates put against the future five years, it's still a very, very difficult office market. And this has been a bit of a pile on with oil prices, but they've rallied back and they'll continue to rally back. And any student of Calgary knows over decades, it's boom and bust. Right now it's in the penalty box. Can it recover? Uh, sure it can. And it's been more diverse than an oil and gas business uh, you know, community um, in recent years and it's a great place to live. And so, and starting to get a tech market that's quite unique. So I never count it out, but is it in the penalty box right now? For sure it is. And is this problem exacerbated an already pre-existing problem? Uh, a little bit. And so as owners, you've got to be very creative, very inventive, figure out new uses, figure out adaptations, and just weather the storm, because that's just what, uh, what the market's telling you you have to do today as a big owner. You mentioned the tech sector. I wonder, as both uh, an investor and as a landlord, do you see the tech sector as more or less insulated from COVID-19? Oh, if you study any of the market positions, the tech center uh, sector's been rallying. And when people say, you know, there's been a substantial recovery from the fallout from COVID-19, it's the tech stocks that have gone off like a rocket 
and it's the more conventional traditional businesses that are still getting hit very hard. So it, it really is a tale of two different economies right now. And so if you're ahead of the curve and you have the absolute right uh, technology, this has been an opportunity of a lifetime. And, um, and you've seen that, you know, by the very nature of what's happening with, uh, with teams or zoom or any of the digital, um, you know, our usership is up, I think 3,500% of the, of these sort of interactive conversations. And so, um, yeah, there's huge winners from what we witnessed and you're going to continue to see that. And it does affect real estate. It does affect the stock market and you, and you, you know, there's been no time that we've seen that differential, um, more, more uh, exaggerated. Technology, I would say is yes, probably less cyclical and they also have the advantage of being able to work from home. So I would say it is less impacted, but um, when you look at the employment numbers from March through May, professional services lost jobs. Um, so that tells you that they're not immune to weak demand overall. Um, and they're not immune to the fact that the recovery is expected to take well beyond 2021 um, to recover fully. So a global shutdown draws attention to the weak link in just-in-time delivery models. What does this mean for the industrial property market? There's been an ever-increasing shift away from retail and towards industrial assets, as and, and it's almost been a zero-sum game. Those goods have to be put somewhere, and if they're not going into retail centers, they're stored in industrial markets um, in and around core cities. And so industrial real estate for the last several years has been in experiencing the highest annual net rental growth and the lowest amount of um, vacancy. And so the contraction on cap rates has been evident too. It's become more and more expensive and more and more in vogue by investors globally. So we've, we've, watched, we've witnessed that all around the world and we've got big positions in Asia and big positions in this continent, particularly in industrial and it's done extraordinarily well. And during this time, it's continuing to do extraordinarily well. And during this time, more and more real estate investors are tracking towards that asset class. So it's clearly one of the winners from, from not only recent months, but in recent years. And retail is a net loser right, in the same equation. And retail to us has always been three things. It's been a, a winner-take-all business, it's been technology, and it's about entertainment. And there are certain things that you have to do. You know, you can't get your hair cut uh, online. You can't be entertained online. And we figured out a long time ago that if you're going to be in the retail business, you needed to capitalize on those three things and today, Oxford's portfolio is about 15 or 16% retail. Um, a decade ago, it was probably closer to 35 or 40%. So we identified a trend and said, if we're going to be in the business, we need winner-take-all assets. So with the province of Alberta, we own, for example, Yorkdale, Square One, Scarborough Town Center. And there's, there's still great assets during this time. And so lots of retail, everybody's bruised during this time. But lots of um, there's still lots of great retail. 
secondary markets, secondary assets, owners that didn't understand that those three principles were key to survival, they're going to be experiencing some pretty serious value impairment. Um, but don't count retail out. Today, it's been bruised the most, that in the hotel sector, from all the real estate asset classes. Yeah, so these just-in-time deliveries, if you look at what inventories to shipments have done um, for U.S. manufacturers, they essentially have been falling since 1990. They started to creep a little higher um, in starting in 2010, and that probably reflected lower interest rates, which makes it much more cost-effective to stockpile goods. They still are at very historically low levels, however, and of course, this crisis has exemplified um, some of the challenges that can be faced when there is a hole in, in any supply chain. So I think it is reasonable to assume that people will hold more, businesses will hold more inventories um, going forward. Um, and it will be cheaper to do so as well because of the drop in interest rates that we've seen. Um, there are certain goods, um, essential goods, specifically that should see greater stockpiling. Um, defense, technology, medical goods, those are all things that countries will want to have ample supply of in the event um, that something of this nature happens again. Um, now, globalization happened for a reason. We don't see that um, reversing. Uh, we don't see reshoring of production to a significant extent. Um, the reason why production has, been, has moved all around the world has been um, for cost effectiveness reasons. So um, I think it might be more cost effective for these for firms to store inventories locally rather than to totally reshore production. So I do think we could see more demand for industrial space. If you look at the inventory to shipment ratio for manufacturers in the US, it's fallen a lot since 1990. It started to creep up after 2010. Um, and that probably reflects lower interest rates, which make it more cost effective to store goods locally. Um, and I think this crisis really has exemplified how one hole in the supply chain can really be a barrier to receiving product. So um, it is likely that producers will want to stockpile more goods. Um, and with interest rates even lower now, that's just another incentive. Now, we are not looking for a mass reshoring of production here. Um, supply chains and globalization occurred for a reason. That's because it's more cost effective to produce certain goods um, in different places around the world. Um, so we don't foresee that happening, but um, the shift to online retailing is another reason why we would expect greater demand for industrial spaces. Um, we'll need to have warehouses stocked with goods to get them to customers. Um, and then the other thing is that governments will probably want to hold higher stocks of essential goods. So uh, defense goods, medical goods, technology goods, um, those are all things that will probably be stored um, on a greater scale than they were prior to this crisis. You mentioned malls. You know, you own three of Ontario's biggest malls. Um, how does a, a mall survive when its tenants don't have street access to accept customers? What kind of vacancy rates are you expecting us to be dealing with as the dust settles? Not all assets are created equally, right? And so, and again, fortunately, 
we've been very committed to having great retail and great retail is going to do just fine. I mean, it's going through a tough time as you know, and as you read, um, but as jurisdictions are opening it up, including the announcements of the premier in Ontario this week, um, then you'll start to see uh, people get back into their habits. You'll start to see people with uh, a desperate need to get out and spend again because they've been sitting on their credit cards for a long period of time. And retail will be back. And we, we're seeing that by Asian example. We're seeing that right now in southern United States. It's, it's actually quite amazing how quickly people get back to their old habits. And so um, it'll take some time. There's no question. It'll be a learning process. We're going to have to be cautious about second and third waves, things of that nature. But great retail is great retail. And we think our book is going to do uh, really well in, over time. But unfortunately, a lot of the industry won't experience that same good fortune. So what kind of vacancy rates would you anticipate seeing as a result of the, the I suppose you could, you could call it a Darwinism, you know, survival of the retail fittest. Uh, what does that look like to you? And, and, and for those who do survive, how much more expensive is it to do business in a post-COVID world? Well, they're very different questions. I mean, uh, having owned Yorkdale for now decades, um, what will our vacancy rate be? Negligible. Uh, there will be turnover. There are going to be retailers who don't make it. We've always had um, a ridiculously long list of those who are desperate to get into that asset. And so there's a good example of um, absolutely neg negligible vacancy rate in any foreseeable medium period of time. So again, winners and losers. The second question is, is it more expensive? Clearly, it's more difficult. If you're a restaurant that has to make money on three turnovers and through social distancing, you only have two, you, you'll you see, you know, a lot of small mom and pop restaurants not make it. And so, and less customers are prepared to pay, you know, a third more. And so um, that'll be, you know, that's where you just feel for people, particularly smaller retailers uh, in the entertainment space, particularly in the food and beverage space, particularly. And, um, and until people get back to the same habits they had before, it's going to be tough. Will patios make up a difference? Maybe, but we're a pretty cool country for most of the year. So those, those are the places where you'll see a recovery um, very long dated and, and for some, they just won't be able to make it work. So the commercial property market for food in terms of grocery stores, um, of course, they're seeing extremely strong demand during this period of time where restaurants are just starting to open up now. Um, uh, so they'll probably continue to see that strong demand. Um, it is a non-discretionary segment. Of course, restaurants will be operating at limited capacity. Um, there is, it would be reasonable to assume that they would have to pass on some of the higher costs 
um, from these new safety requirements to customers at a time when unemployment is still elevated and demand is weak, which is just another barrier to the recovery. Um, when you look at the large-scale entertainment industry, um, just limits on the number of people that can gather are a major barrier through the next few years, I foresee, um, for that industry. And in addition to that, it'll probably be negatively impacted um, from tourism and travel restrictions, which look to be in place again for an extended period of time. With Canada having 1.2 million small to medium-sized businesses, yet only 16,000 tenants applied for rent relief, to what do you attribute this? Right. So the uptake of the commercial rent subsidy program was very disappointing. And a large portion of that has to do with the fact that landlords had to apply for it rather than tenants. And landlords also had to absorb um, some of the hit um, from if if tenants could not pay the other portion of their rent. Um, so just a lot of landlords were not uh, paying for or applying for it. Um, now what we've seen is that Ontario has just recently followed BC in banning commercial evictions. Um, so that has led to an uptick in the application process for the commercial rent subsidy. Um, and it, it probably will need to be extended, the commercial rent program. Um, so that's something that we look for as well. And this should also help increase uptake of the wage subsidy program. Um, that's another program that has seen very uh, weak uptake. Um, and it's really important for the employer-employee link to be uh, maintained during this crisis so that the recovery can be that much faster than if it were broken. Um, of course, if companies go insolvent, that's a permanent loss to GDP. Um, and employees that ultimately lose their jobs might end up with depreciating skills or a skills mismatch. Um, trying to find another job. So it's very important to preserve that link. And if firms can pay their rent, um, then they can have a greater chance of, of keeping people on the payroll with the help of the wage subsidy. You mentioned that certain tech companies and certain aspects of their industry see COVID-19 as an opportunity of a lifetime. Does Omer see opportunity in crisis? Absolutely. On the tech space alone, we've averaged a couple hundred million dollars of allocation to the tech sector. And um, during this period, we've, we've upped that number to a uh, billion dollars. So we, we've taken, you know, approximately 1% of our portfolio and assigned it to the technology sector in and of itself to our ventures platform. And uh, I really like our odds and I really like our team. We've got people now in Silicon Valley, in England and here in Toronto, and we're seeing virtually every new opportunity we think in those uh, three parts of the world. And um, in my opinion, we're irresponsible not to put a sizable allocation of our portfolio against that opportunity set. Um, and on a much bigger level, do we see opportunities in all of these cracks and through these difficult times? Absolutely, without question. You know, I would put our infrastructure team against any in the world as being competitive um, 
And that infrastructure book through these times has shown material resilience. I'd put our uh, real estate company, Oxford, against the very, very best of the world. We're going to see all kinds of opportunities to compete in the markets in which we choose to invest. Um, our private equity team, I'd put up against the best in the world. And, you know, our capital markets team, um, same thing. So when we, you know, went into this storm, we basically said, you have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Let's get as much liquidity as possible so that we would never jeopardize the plan over the next five, 10 and 20 years. And let's make sure that when things start to turn the corner, we are armed with capital to unlock uh, what we hope will be lifetime, once in lifetime opportunities. And um, if you have the team in place and you have a balance sheet the way we have, we are very optimistic about our future. Um, but I can't be Pollyanna about it. This year is going to be a really tough one, not only from a return perspective, but just for so many people on our platform and in our society. And that's not fun. And it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's been a difficult time for, for, for all of us. And, um, and we got to get through it. We got to get through it together. We got to get through it as a community and we will be, um, I, I like our, I mean, our future is going to be outstanding. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for asking. Thank you. That's Catherine Judge, economist at CIBC Capital Markets and Blake Hutchinson, the president and CEO of OMERS. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute? Regulatory focus in turbulent times, July 14th, with Grant Vingo of the Ontario Securities Commission. And can COVID-19 propel Ontario's justice system into the digital age with Chief Justice Jeffrey Morowitz and the Honorable Douglas Downey? That's July 23rd. Visit cdhowe.org to sign up for the webinars. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.